Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to another week of the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hello. Hey, I'm here. Um, I had so much fun subjecting you to trivia the other week. Um, I thought we'd do it again. So Ooh, are you I'm ready? Terrified. For, no, for new trivia? no, I'm <laughs> no absolutely terrified out of my no mind. That you have not say. studied or prepared for this. I, I mean, I think people, I know we talk about some things in advance and we admit, admit to it when we're recording, but like these, you actually spring on me, which is why I'm terrified. I know. So fun. Okay. So because we have an amazing guest talking about surrogacy in Uganda, we are going to give you Ugandan trivia. Awesome. Okay. I am going to sound like an absolute fool. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> okay. I feel like you can do this. I, I'm going to, okay. I, I can do this. Okay. Jen. Who did Uganda gain independence from, a.k.a. what country? Oh, God. You got uh, this. France? No. I mean, Britain, it helps Great that they Britain speak then. this language. So Great, <laughs> this Great is... Britain? Yes, good. Excellent. Because one of the great points about Uganda is oh, they speak right. English, right? Um, yeah. Do you want to guess what year they gained independence from Great Britain? I do not want to guess. I want you to tell me. <laughs> Let's just try. Do you want to just try a ballpark year? Uh, I'll give you this. It was before you were born. How's that? I said 1965 just now. So oh, that is definitely Wow. That is really good. You're off only by three years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. October 9th, okay. 1962. Okay. That is amazing. All right. Um, okay. Should we, should we do more? Here. I'll One more. Like, how about a lake one? Okay, which major lake does Uganda border? Uh, do I get multiple choice? Here, I'll give you a description. So this lake is the largest lake on the African continent, the world's largest tropical lake, and the world's second largest freshwater lake. How's that? I mean, if I were actually Googling, I could look this up fast enough to come up with an answer, but I am not. So I do not know okay. the answer. No worries. Lake Victoria. Okay. We've oh. learned so much already, but let's learn more by talking to our guest. Welcome, Lisa Stark Hughes. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Lisa, you wear so many hats in this world. Do you want to start by saying hi and telling us all your different positions and roles say, you play? How do you introduce you, right? <laughs> no. Oh, goodness. Okay, so that would be a lot. Let's see. So I am um, the mother of six. I am uh, the grandmother to two. Ooh. And let's see. I own um, GS Moms here in the United States, and then I own... Um, Host Moms Uganda in Uganda. I am on the boards of SEEDS, which is the Ethics Organization for Surrogacy and Egg Donation here in the United States. Um, I'm also the Education Chair for SEEDS, and I'm on the Conference Committee, the Mentorship Committee, and I feel like I'm forgetting one, but that could I, be it. I assume you sleep somewhere in there, maybe. <laughs> What, what's that? I said, I assume you sleep somewhere, maybe. No, I don't know. I would know. assume like, she doesn't. Do you? Like, that's a I lot do actually get like seven, eight hours of sleep a night. Wow. So, that's yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, but I, I oh. get up, like I am up by 6 a.m. At the, at the latest. And then, you know, but then I go to bed at like, I don't know, 9, 30, 10 or something. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I feel like we could talk to you about so many different topics uh, in the world of assisted reproduction, but we have specifically scheduled this podcast to talk about Uganda, which I'm really excited to hear what's going on. And I feel like I know so little, so you'll really be introducing and educating. Um, but before we fully dive into that, um, I would love to hear just a little bit more about your background of what led you to this world. Yeah, so um, after my fifth, so my my one of my children is a step is a stepson. So five, I've had five pregnancies before I became a surrogate. Um, 
When I was pregnant with my youngest daughter, my oldest sister actually asked me if I would be a surrogate for her and my youngest sister was going to be the egg donor. But then a month before I delivered um, my daughter, they had the opportunity to adopt a newborn. So that was what first brought up the concept of surrogacy. Um, to me, I was willing to do that for her. Obviously, could not do that while I was already pregnant. So she had to wait for delivery. Were you right away, absolutely yes. Or were you like, oh, what's that? That's interesting. Tell me more. Um, actually, for me, it was an easy yes. Um, and, and I think for a couple of reasons. So one, um, my pregnancies had all been super easy. My deliveries are like four hours long. So Wow. You just can't really beat that. Um, and then also from the time I was four weeks old until I was, I don't know, 35 or something, my parents took uh, foster children and they were in a program from the time I was in like fourth or fifth grade where they took medically fragile infants. And so literally my whole life, except for, you know, the first four weeks, which I don't remember, um, we had had, you know, we were caring for somebody's child and then they would you know go back home or they would get adopted or whatever um this the program that they were in uh foster children did not get moved around like you didn't just go from home to home you would go to one home and then either be adopted or go back home so the concept of caring for you know a child and then giving them back to their parents was never an issue for me because I had grown up with, well, of course, like that's super easy. Um, now my mom had concerns. My mom was oh, very much, yeah. My mom was like, well, aren't you going to get attached to the baby? And aren't you, you know, isn't this going to be hard for you? That's and I said, mom, given that you say that did that. Her? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, like, how is this different than, you know, taking foster kids, except I don't have to change any diapers. Like this is the easy part. I just, you know, I'm pregnant. And then, you know, at delivery, when it's going to start to keep me from sleeping. And I mean, not that while you're pregnant, you're not kept from sleeping, but it's not the same, right. As a having a newborn, um, you know, they go back to their parents. So to me, it was very straightforward and obvious thing to do. Um, and what brought me back to it after, um, you know, my sister no longer needed me to be a surrogate. So when my um, youngest daughter was two and a half, three, I think she was three during the journey. So it was probably closer when she was two and a half was when I applied. Um, the reason was because I wanted to go to law school, um, but I didn't want to take out any um, loans to go to law school. And so I was currently at that point a stay-at-home mom. And so the options were, let's see, I have five kids. Um, I can go to work and try and figure out how to juggle, you know, all of the different places that they need to be. Or I, you know, when I was looking for work, a surrogate ad popped up and I was like, oh, that's right. Like that would be an interesting thing. So I talked to my husband and then we talked to our older kids and we actually asked, um, so the oldest two, my stepson and my oldest son are both boys. Um, and they were, let's see, how old were they then? Emily was five. I, I would say that they were like 12-ish, 12, 13. Um, and so, you know, we asked the older kids, you know, which would you guys prefer? Which would you feel more comfortable with? Would you feel more comfortable with me going and getting a job so that I can go to law school or would you guys how would you feel about if I was a surrogate and the way that they looked at it was me being pregnant was a known quantity like I had been pregnant enough times they knew exactly <laughs> what they were getting into me going to work um no. is not something I had done that often like I have you know had jobs and you know outside the house but they didn't enjoy that as much. Like they knew that that interferes with their life more than me being pregnant. And their biggest thing was this kid's not coming home, right? Like, no, it's going <laughs> to go with his parents. And they're like, okay, then that's fine. Like that was their biggest concern was, are you, you going to be bringing home another kid? Nope. All right. Then we're good with I, this. Let's. I let's love that you involved them in that decision. <laughs> yeah. 
So it was, you know, that was their decision. So then as a family, we, you know, moved forward with surrogacy and, um, and that's, yeah, that's how it all started. So I did, did my first did journey. I did. I, well, I went through the first two years cause I was doing it part-time. Um, and so I did do law school and then I started, um, working for an agency that had everybody as independent contractors. So because I had been to law school, one of the things that I pointed out when I got my contract was, well, in order to qualify to be an independent contractor, I have to actually either have my, my own business, or I have to be doing other things, you know what I mean? Outside, like you can't be my only client as a 1099 independent contractor. Um, I don't qualify. And I said, so either we all have, all of the employees have to have their own businesses or we need to be employees. And so the owner of the agency decided everybody should start their own business. So that's what we all did. Um, and then so that there wouldn't be a conflict of interest, um, the owner of that agency only worked with domestic parents. Now this was so long ago that like the international market wasn't as big as it is now, like it was, it was, there were less international parents. So um, she just didn't feel comfortable working with international parents. She wanted to keep it all domestic. So in order to not compete, I only worked with international intended parents. So that's actually how I started. Um, and then they put the agency up for sale. And so when that happened, all the employees started focusing on their own um, businesses a little bit more because as independent contractors, if somebody were to buy the agency, we felt like we weren't really sure if they would keep us or not, right? Because we weren't right. employees coming with a package. Um, right. So we all kind of focused on our own thing. It took her a while to sell. Um, and so kind of gradually as people built up their own agencies, they dropped off. And so um, I did as well. And then China um, got rid of their one child policy. And I'm sure both of you know, the international market like grew really quickly. Um, and so it was at that point, um, when I was getting ready to start my third year of law school that I'm like, this will just be a temporary thing. So I'm going to take a year off and then I'll go back. But <laughs> that high demand didn't just did not drop off um, quickly. So I ended up not finishing. My goal is to still go back and finish. Um, but I only did the first two years of law school. Yeah. So I did not go back and finish. Um, and it's funny because I actually um applied and got accepted back to go back to the same law school to finish um and I was going to start this coming January and then Uganda picked up and so now I'm like um <laughs> so now, now I have to decide again like, yeah yeah it's just a temporary <laughs> thing again. Year. next year again. yeah yeah so anyway it's still on my list that I will go and I will finish um I will finish law school although now my goals are a little different originally I wanted to do um be a, like a child advocate. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but, it, and then it shifted to, I wanted to do, you know, art law, like reproductive law. Um, now That's more of what cool. I want to, yeah, more of what I'm wanting to do now though, is um, more like lobbying um, because all, there's so much reproductive laws or laws that impact reproductive health out there going, you know, in different states, but the lobbyists that are hired don't typically really have a background in it. They don't really understand the day-to-day -day, like implications of those decisions. Um, a lot of them, they fall back on just kind of whatever the political narrative is. So for example, in my opinion, in the abortion conversation, um, you know, one side says we're saving a life and the other side says it's about choice. And I feel like there's no way to meet in the middle or have a constructive conversation as long as those are the narratives. You need to get into the actual practical 
applications. So for example, when you start with an ectopic pregnancy, unless you're that senator or whoever it was that said, oh, we don't have to worry about that because a doctor can just take the embryo, the, move the it. embryo <laughs> and move it to the uterus. Like, you know, without conversations like that, where you're just like, hey, you're an idiot and don't know what you're talking about. For anyone um, who does not know, you can't actually yes. just. Yeah, you cannot do that. Just for all those people that believe that. Yeah, just that is not possible. There. We're just just for the senators. Yeah, that is not possible. Um, but when you actually talk about the practical application, so are you saying that even though there is zero chance that the baby can live and the mother can live both without some sort of termination of that pregnancy with an ectopic pregnancy, are you saying that you would just rather them both die? Even the pro-life people at that point usually say, well, no, that's not what I meant, right? They're willing to find a solution there that saves at least one life. Um, but the problem is that so much of the narrative assumes that every single pregnancy ends in a live, healthy birth. And that's just not true. And so- I definitely appreciate this. I feel like we should have another episode when we talk we about should. your advocacy. <laughs> back to uganda yeah um do you want to share how uganda came into the picture for you sure um so first of all i um i know someone who used to live in sacramento so i live in northern california um about like an hour so from sacramento and there was someone that i know that used to live in sacramento i've known him for years um his father is an ambassador in in uganda and over the ministry of gender and a variety of other things um but he ended up going back home to work in i say back home back to uganda um to work for his father in 2015 16 something like that um anyway so Uganda, surrogacy has been legal there for about 20 years, um, but they don't have any regulations. So it's like, it's legal. There you go. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's kind of the extent of it. Was it happening? Was it common? Was Was it accepted? It's not common. Um, It is accepted. It is happening. So, and it's not just happening for those that need it in Uganda. Um, They had people mostly from the UK that would come. And the reason why people from the UK would come is because there are insurance policies um, in the UK that would cover medical procedures in Uganda. And so of course, UK laws do not allow for surrogacy. And so they would go where it was, but it would be like all the IVF, for example, I mean, not the pregnancy, but the IVF portion um, would be covered under the intended parents um, insurance policy. So that's why, that's why they would go there. Um, So it was happening. Without without regulation, was it going smoothly or were there issues? So it is going smoothly, but um, there are some practices that, we would not agree with that we're becoming standard. And so one thing that's different in Uganda than at least in America, I can't say everywhere, but we don't have this in America is so every district um, has their regular representative and then they have a woman's representative. So think of like your house of representatives, but every district has two um, elected officials one has to be female and the other one can be either gender. That's interesting. And, and the, the woman's minister, her job is to advocate for women's issues in parliament. And, and the reason is because in their culture, um, men are not entitled to an opinion on women's issues and they don't feel entitled to an opinion. And they feel that only women can speak about women's issues that it would just be like rude for a man to have an opinion, much less create laws that would impact a woman without women like saying, this is what we want or that this is good. So we could learn something, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so 
with all of these women's ministers, there were um, a couple that actually, due to their own family building journey, um, were looking at surrogacy for themselves. And of course, they started with Uganda, because that's, you know, where they are, that's their home country. So they started there. And as they were looking into how things are done, um, there were a few of them were like, okay, like, I hear what you're saying, doctor, but this doesn't sit well with me. Like, I'm not sure how it should be done, but I'm not quite believing what you're telling me. So for example, um, the, they have women's hospitals there. So it's not like just an IVF clinic and then, you know, a hospital that would take care of pregnancy. Like the women's hospitals that handle all female issues. So IVF, maternity, delivery, like that would all be one hospital, um, fertility issues, things like that. So, um, but a doctor at the, at the women's hospital, like the women's hospital would actually own like an apartment complex, like not huge, but you know, a set of apartments. And that was so, because sometimes people have to travel from, you know, the village or whatever out of town into the city and they might need a place to stay. But then for surrogates, what they would do is they would have um, the surrogates stay in like the apartment. So they were close, they would justify it by saying, well, it's close to, um, you know, the doctors that they weren't like restricted, like they had to stay in the apartment, but still they were away from their family, right? Like they were just staying there by themselves. the entire time? Is that the idea? For the entire time, yeah. And then the doctors would also- coming from really far or they just didn't want them traveling back? They felt, this is just the explanation um, that the doctors would give. The women's ministers had an issue with this, but this is, so I'm just giving you their explanation. Their explanation was that way we know what they're eating. We know it was like, it's a more controlled environment, right? You know where they're staying. Um, there was also no contact between the surrogate and the intended parents at all. Oh. And so I think that when there's no contact, right? It's, yeah. you're, you're wanting there to be some sort of control, like a little bit. And so if the hospital is then saying, well, we're putting, we're giving her a place to stay. This is what an apartment looks like. We're making sure that she's eating healthy food. We're making sure she goes to all of her doctor's appointments. Like that's how they were approaching it. Um, And then the doctors believed that um, surrogates would attach to the baby if they delivered vaginally. And so the standard practice is that they would do a C-section and they put you completely under and do a C-section for all deliveries. And then the surrogate would just wake up not pregnant. And they, the doctors absolutely believed that that was the best thing for the surrogate. Um, And I assume these were male doctors making these decisions. Yes. Yes. There's seven, there's seven women. Yeah. There's seven IVF or women's hospitals there. And um, not that there aren't any women, but yeah, all the ones that I met were, were men and they were telling me this and I'm like, no. Um, but anyway, so the, the women's ministers also without any experience were like, this does not sound accurate. This can't be true. And their job is to advocate for women's issues. So they felt that this was a women's issues and it needed to be addressed. Um, and so they spent about three years um, debating like, what regulations, what the rules should be, you know, all these different things. Um, the IV, the women's hospital, the doctors were saying, well, we patterned our program after India and India has the best surrogacy program. You just need to go and see it there. So they actually sent a whole delegation with like the minister of health and doctors and like politicians and everything to India to check out their um, surrogacy program. And they still did not convince the women's ministers. They're like, still not sold. And so anyway, the person that I know was in a meeting where it was brought back up again. And of course, they're politicians. And so politicians have more questions than answers when it comes to things like surrogacy. That's not their area of expertise. So he said, I know someone that might be willing to answer your questions. And 
so he reached out to me and said, you know, hey, they're debating this stuff. He sent me a YouTube video of, um, at that time, it was the prime minister, who is also a woman's minister, um, talking about surrogacy and, you know, some of their concerns and how it could be done, you know, well, and that they had been deba debating it. They wanted regulation. And it was like three years before. And so um, I, of course, said, of course, I'm happy to answer their questions and, and help them. And so there was a lot of, you know, emails back and forth and Zoom meetings and, do you know what I mean, just lots of conversation um, mm -hmm. about how things are done here in the U.S., what's the best practices, you know, all of the different things. Um, and then finally, they asked me, they said, okay, if you were to create a list of everything, like your wish list for surrogacy, and you could have it all in one place, what would that look like? And so I created a list and I sent it to them. And they said, okay, this is possible. Um, and so then they invited me to come to Uganda um, to talk oh, with. Yeah. Just to get like a sense of that list. Yeah. Was it things like she can deliver vaginally? She can live at home? What were, was it things like yeah. that? Absolutely. So she would need to, you know, live at home with her family, unless, of course, there's a medical need. Like if you need to be in the hospital, you need to be in the hospital. Like I get that, um, that you should be able to deliver vaginally unless there's a medical need. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't want her health at risk just to avoid a C-section, but C-section should not be standard. Um, that there should be contact between the intended parents and the surrogate that the surrogate keeps autonomy over her body, that all insurance covers a surrogate pregnancy, um, that we can get pre-birth orders, like yeah. a whole a whole list of things. And you know, it's basically like if you take all the states, right? And mm -hmm. then things that we don't even have that we wish she had, like yeah. all insurance would cover a surrogate pregnancy like any other pregnancy, you know, some of those things we don't have, but we can vocalize that we wish we had that. Um, so I sent them the list. They're like, this is all possible and this is reasonable. Um, so they invited me to come to Uganda. Um, and I was supposed to go in, I think it was like August or something, but at that time, because of COVID, there were no flights happening. Yeah. So, um, but then because remember I'm working with the government, so this is different. So the government knew when the flight ban was going to be lifted, like they knew ahead of time and they actually reached out to me and they're like, okay, they're, we're going to be lifting. The president's going to be lifting the flight ban on whatever day. Can you come in November? You know, can you, what? so I was like on oh. one of the first flights um, that went back into Uganda um, in November of 2020. And um, I was invited by the, the president of the country and they wow. set up like all of these meetings for me, like anybody and everybody that might have an opinion or be involved or anything. Yeah. And they even asked me, like, is there anybody else that you would need to speak to that might be involved in this process? Is there anybody else that you would want to talk to? Um, so I spoke with not only politicians and the, you know, minister of health, which is like their um, public health, you know, the head of their public health, but we talked to hospitals, public hospitals, private hospitals, you know, women's hospitals, um, the head of their psych, their like mental health psychology association, the head of like their ABA. So like their attorneys, um, let's see. Assuming you um, talked to the, surrogates, people who have been surrogates and parents. Yeah, people who have been, sur too. yeah, surrogates, intended parents, um, talk to, but I think the one that I was the most worried about was the interreligious council. So oh. that's the heads of all of the religions in the whole country in wow. one place. And I had to go and talk to them and see what their thoughts were and get their input and yeah. all of that. And I was more worried about that than any other meeting <laughs> that I, I had. Um, we, oh, another one was the association that licenses all their midwives and trains all of the midwives like literally I talked anybody you can think of they set me up to to talk with them 
Um, how, how long were you there for that? Uh, so I was supposed to be there for two weeks and I ended up being there for a month. Yeah. Wow. Um, because there was always like more people and then more people. Um, yeah. So with the inter the interreligious council, I think was probably the most pivotal for me. Um, mostly because so here in America, typically the resistance that we get about surrogacy, not always, but it's quite often from religious groups or religious people because they have a certain narrative about surrogacy. Um, even though surrogacy is mentioned in the Old Testament, which every single religion, Muslim, Jewish, Christians, all believe in the Old Testament. But, and even though it's mentioned not only with um, Sarah and Isaac, so, you know, Ishmael and, sorry, Ishmael and Isaac with Abraham and Sarah, not only with them, but also with Jacob and Rebecca, they had two surrogates to have their children. Um, so everybody agrees on this, but for some reason it's gotten twisted as years have gone on. Um, but in Uganda, all of their questions were very pragmatic. It was like, okay, how exactly does this happen? Where does the egg come from? Where does the sperm come from? Where are they fertilized? Do you know what I mean? How does a transfer happen? Like, you know, all of these types of things. Um, and so the Mufti, who is the head of the interreligious council at that time, uh, so they rotate like what religion is the head of the um, interreligious council, it like rotates. So at that time it was the Mufti, which is the head of the Muslim religion in, in Uganda. And one of the things that he said was, okay, in their religion, they allow for wet nurses. And one of the, the biggest reasons, they also allow polygamy. And one of the biggest, or said the biggest reason that a man will take on a second wife is because his first wife is infertile. And so then when you take on a second wife and let's say that the second wife is having children, then that causes contention because, you know, one can have children, one can't and jealousy, whatever. He goes, surrogacy would provide an answer for that. And in their religion, they allow for wet nurses. So, and wet nurses are always compensated. And so he felt that surrogacy was very much like that. In, like, in line with being a wet nurse. Yeah, I yes, that. in line with being a wet nurse. And, and so they had no issues with compensation. They had no issues with, you know, the concept of surrogacy. Their biggest concern was um, a wet nurse's, a wet nurse's children cannot marry the child of the, of the parent or the family that they carry, that they nursed, right? because they consider them all siblings now. It's like, now you're all family. And so they said, how can we keep that from happening? I said, well, if the intended parents know each other and the surrogate knows the intended parents, how are their children supposed to get married without the parents knowing? And they're like, yep, that fixes it. Okay, so that's important <laughs> to us. Um, and I'm like, well, we were planning on doing that anyway, so that works. Um, and then so the other- That's so crazy. That's never an issue I've ever heard of that, so the the, right. the question is, could a surrogate's child marry, like her own child, marry the intended parent's child? And they said that because they consider it religiously that they're siblings, not right, so just religious. Yeah. And, yeah. and let me tell you, in Africa, or at least in Uganda, but I've heard it's like this in other places in Africa as well. Um, the concept of family is much wider than it is to us, or from from for us here in America or those people that um came from England right so for us it's very linear like you have your parents then the biological parents that's the child like we have very linear definitions of what that looks like in in Uganda your you have your mother and your father but all of your father's brothers are not your uncle, those are your, those are your father. Those are like still your father. And then your mom's sisters, like those are all just the same as your mom. Her brothers are your uncles. So the whole concept of it takes a village to raise a child is very, very true in, in Africa. So if, if someone says like, 
oh, have you met my aunt? You're like, I've met like, or have you met my mom? And you're like, I've met like three different people that you're saying is your mom. Like that's a, that's a real thing. And to them, they don't understand the, why we would be so hung up on like this person is my mother because um, let's say like you have a best friend from childhood. And so his mother has known you your whole life. Well, that's still your mom because she cares about you. She's known you from the time that you were little. Um, she cares for you. She's older than you and, you know, not really an authority figure, but kind of, do you know what I mean? Like you would give her that respect. Yeah. So it's, she's your mom too. Like, because she, she cares about you and she would nurture you like a mother. Like when you come to their house, like they're going to feed you until you're going to burst. You know what I mean? Like they want to make sure you're okay. So Did the they other just have religious leaders have other concerns that were surprising. Um, so most of theirs were just logistically how it happened, you know, like, where like where are the egg and the um, sperm fertilized and how's it put in and do you know what I mean? Does the surrogate have sex with anybody? Like okay, right. so we just clarified all of that. All the um, misconceptions, the, yeah, yeah, all the misconceptions. We handled those. Um, the other thing that kind of all of them had a concern about was um, so Af Africa is the fastest growing economy in the world. Um, in Uganda, there's a lot of self-employment um, because you can have a college degree, but there aren't a whole lot of jobs as far as working for someone else um, that's available. I mean, not enough to meet the population. So there's a lot of self-employment that happens, but they have an issue with startup capital. So um, like you can have your bachelor's degree or you know, master's degree or whatever in something. But if you don't have the startup capital, that kind of limits your ability of what kind of businesses you can start, right? Um, and so what they didn't want was for surrogates to feel like now surrogacy was a form of employment. Like, this is what I'm doing for a job. Um, they what they preferred, what they asked for actually was um, financial literacy um, classes for the surrogates and some sort of, they call it a skilling program. We would call it a training program um, to assist them in starting their own business. So that then the hope was that they would use their surrogacy income as startup capital. And so we developed that um, based on that recommendation. And we actually, so before a profile is shown to intended parents, they've already gone through the um, entrepreneurship and financial literacy program. They actually have a savings plan. So they already have not only their business plan, but they'll have um, a savings plan. So it's like, here's all of the startup capital that I'm going to need. Here's my list of supplies. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's my contingency, all of that. And then, okay, if I save X amount a month out of my surrogacy income, then um, I'll be able to start my business after delivery. Or because a lot already have their own business, they'll be able to expand, right? And it'll be more of an expansion plan. And so we put that um, together and that came directly from the Interreligious Council because wow. And, and the neat thing is, is as we start looking into it, it's, it creates a different relationship now between the intended parents and the surrogate because both sides are investing in each other's dream, right? So it's on their profile, like this is what they're wanting to do. And here's, you know, not only are they wanting to help somebody, but they're doing this so that they can, um, so for example, we have a, a surrogate that is a midwife. And so she works at a hospital. Um, and her wages, like she absolutely has a livable wage. It's fine. But what she would like to do is to open a birthing center in her village so that people in her village don't need to travel into the city for prenatal care um, or for like a regular delivery. So that takes startup capital, right? She already owns the land, but she has to be able to build the buildings. You have to go through the permitting process. You have to get the equipment, you know, all of those types of things. So 
now you have the parents that are investing, you know, they know where their money is going. It's not just like, hey, I'm giving you this money just because you're doing this for me. It's now they know where that's going. Like they're also helping to um, create this birthing center in this village that that's, that's going to make an impact on a lot of lives. And the surrogate is helping the intended parents reach their dream of having a child. So it's like everybody's lives are impacted, you know, for generations to come and not just this, like, thank you for helping me um, kind of a thing that a lot of anti-surrogacy people will talk about. Yeah. Are the compensation numbers? So, I mean, when you talk about building a building and starting a business, it seems like that would be significant capital are compensation numbers comparable to the U.S. or or different? So we set the compensation at, um, basically what we did is we took the average annual salary of a woman working in the city that has a bachelor's degree, which was $15,000. And so that's, that's what her base fee is. And the fee structures are set up exactly like the U.S. So you know, there's a monthly allowance and, you know what I mean? All those types of things, but the base fee is $15,000. And that's, you know, there's a conversion rate, right? So um, $1 is worth, I mean, depends on what the conversion rate is at the moment, but, you know, it's about 3,500, 3,600 shillings for $1. Okay. How... So, I mean, the next thing I think people think about when they worry about going overseas and we should talk about like Mexico and other places, what does the legal process look like? So the legal process is actually exactly like it is here in the States. So you have a contract that's done after medical clearance, but before she has started a cycle um, between the directly between the intended parents and the surrogate. And then during the pregnancy, there's a pre-birth order that's done that goes through the court system that um, officially designates the parents as the parents. Um, Then at the hospital, they get the hospital copy of the birth certificate that gets turned into NERA, which is the the National Identification Registry Association. I forget exactly. Anyway, it's who handles all of the, like the national IDs and the birth certificates and things. So you get the official birth certificate with the government stamp on it. And then, so for um, international intended parents, then that is what gets turned in with your copies and, you know, all those types of things to your home embassy so that you get um, your passport and travel documents so that you can take your baby home. Got it. How long does um, and that, do you know? I mean, how long does that typically take? I, I mean, since that's always a concern, like how long are we do we have to stay in another country if we were to pursue? Yeah, so it takes about a week to get um, from birth. It takes about three or four days um, to get the official um, birth certificate, and so then you just schedule your appointment with the um, with the embassy, which most of them are there in, right in Kampala. And that usually takes a couple days, you know, like you, you schedule it and your appointment will be in a couple days. Do you know what I mean? And then they handle it all there. And then they say, okay, come back the next day to pick up the passport. So, you know, we say allow two weeks, but it won't necessarily be that long. That's actually pretty quick. That's kind of, yeah, it's kind of allowing for weekends and do you know what I mean? Those types of things. Wow. It's really fast. So, and then in Uganda, they're also the children um, are eligible, but it's, so in America, all children are American citizens that are born here, right? In Uganda, because you're born there, you're eligible for Ugandan citizenship, but it's not forced on you. So if the parents want the child to be a Ugandan citizen, then it's just paperwork that the attorney handles and, you know, if gets done at the same time as the official birth certificate and stuff. So it doesn't add any more time, but, um, but that's an option for parents as well. So how's it going? Is it, is it huge? Is it smooth? Are international parents coming from everywhere? Tell us more. 
Yeah, so, so far we have parents from Canada, America, Australia, and the UK. So, um, you know, it's going. We, we end up dealing with a lot of, a lot of it's just educating about Uganda in general. So for example, um, English is the official language of the country. So everybody speaks English there. It's British English. So, you know, if you're an American, you have to like, <laughs> don't think that there's spelling errors but you can obviously read it right like if labor has an extra u you still know it's labor um you know so there isn't any issues like that they have a slight accent but you know other than that it's it's fine like you can talk to everybody um you can talk directly to your surrogate so you don't have any issues with um you know trying to communicate with your surrogate everybody speaks english so so that's nice um a lot of people don't realize, realize that, you know, Uganda is a country like a normal country. Um, so are there poor places in Uganda? Sure. Just like there's poor places in America. You know what I mean? Like you can go and look for whatever you want, but like their cities are like our cities. They have traffic, they have malls, they have, you know what I mean? Um, it's not a desert. It's right on the equator. So they're like a lot of people, like I grew up when I was little being told like there's people starving in Africa. Um, yeah, not so much in Uganda. There's food everywhere. They have no concept of preserving food because everything is always in season year round. Um, so, you know, it's, I think a lot of it is just education on, you know, on that part, we've had embryos shipped from, um, Canada, the US, um, we have a shipment coming up in January from Australia um, and from South America. We've had um, shipments from South America as well if people had embryos there. So, or sorry, from South Africa. Um, so, you know, it's coming along. I mean, a total journey in Uganda, including everything is like $75,000, $80,000. And that includes the IVF expenses, the legal expenses, like everything. Um, we also set it up so that the um, attorneys for both sides, they actually represent their party for the whole process. So here in the US, you have your attorney that represents you for contracts and then they represent you for parentage. But if things come up in the middle, there's a lot of attorneys that will help out and will you know, do what's needed. But there's other attorneys who are like, no, I'm only representing you, you know, for contracts or I'm only, you know, and parentage, like that's it. That's the extent. Um, but your attorney in Uganda represents you for the entire process. So if you need, you know, for, so for example, applying for the paperwork for NERA, they, your attorney handles that and it's just one flat fee. So all of this is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's all new. And um, I mean, I think that we live in such a bubble in the United States, so we don't really know what's happening in other countries. So it's really interesting to hear. Uh, yeah. What's your time looking like these days between U.S. and Uganda? Are you, is it 50-50? How much time do you spend over there? <laughs> so um, I do go back and forth and um, I'm there every couple of months for about a month. So like I go for transfers, I'll end up going for deliveries, but I also have staff there. So I have staff that are there full time. Um, so like we have a social worker that goes and sees our surrogates every single week. We have um, a midwife that gives them all of their injections when they're doing, um, you know, when they're preparing for a cycle and, you know, through that time period where they're doing injections, we have a midwife that goes to their house every day that gives them their injections. Um, so, you know, I have a whole staff, my coordinators and things like that. I just got an apartment there. So that's cheaper for me yes. to, <laughs> for me to go there. Um, because that's anyway, yeah. Staying in a hotel can get expensive when you're there for a month. So, um, yeah. So, so all, I, all yeah. The you don't have your own things. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is everyone, all the gestational carriers kind of from the same area? If a midwife is going to their houses to give all the injections? Um, so right now we have all of our surrogates in Kampala um, yeah. and we have like different midwives. So like 
like Kampala is a city, so it's the capital, so it's large, right? It can take you a while to get from one area to another. Um, and so we have a midwife that like, we kind of group the surrogates, right? That live near each other. And then they have a midwife that does their injections. Does that make sense? Same with the social worker. So we have a social yeah. worker. I mean, it's so interesting because culturally here, everyone does their own injections, right? So it's, that's interesting that there you have a, a medical professional come and do them for you. Yeah, I think it's, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, in America, it'd be really expensive, right? To have somebody go and do that. Um, two, and so in Uganda, it's not it's not very expensive to have someone to come and do that. Um, but also, it create there's never a question, did they take their injections correct, correctly? Which it isn't something that happens very often in America, but it can happen where it's like, oh, they were taking... 0.2 instead of two because they were using the wrong syringe or do you know what I mean like things like that yeah. and so I think, it sounds nice. I think people would prefer not to give their own injections if they didn't have right. to yeah it's just it just makes it easier I mean we talk to them and you know the surrogates and stuff and like if somebody they're just nervous you know what I mean about doing it themselves and so it was easy enough for us to do that and we felt that it just raise the level of, um, I mean, the, all of our surrogates are living at home with their families. So, but it still gave that reassurance that you know that it's being done correctly, right? Because it's a medical professional. It's somebody that's doing this several times. Do you know what I mean? Like they know exactly what needs it. They have the orders. They have, you know, they write it down. You get like a receipt that says, okay, I was at so-and-so's house at this time. I gave them this, you know, and they both sign it and it's turned in and submitted. So there's more documentation of like, here's what happened. So if there's ever any, like, we need to go back and look. Nope. We know exactly that this is what, you know, this is what happened. Well, I'm generally just blown away because I, I feel like we hear so much about how the United States is an anomaly. Other countries view surrogacy so negatively. So it's it's fascinating and refreshing to hear another country and especially the religious leader saying, no, this this makes sense. Yeah, it was, I don't want to say shocking, but it was very eye opening to me. Um, I think the most eye opening thing, though, to me personally was just their view of women in general in Uganda. Like I always felt like when I went to Uganda the first time, I'm like, you know, we as Americans, like we're so forward thinking we've had these sexual revolutions several times. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause it's always been said, that's why it, yeah. surrogacy works in America is because we've had these, you know, social um, events where, you know, women are being empowered. And then I go to Uganda and I'm like, we are so backwards. <laughs> like, why don't we have women's ministers? Like, why, why, how can we make that happen? And then, I mean, so here's, I was talking to somebody there and it was very interesting. I, I, I said, what if there was some law, whatever it is that everyone acknowledged was a women's issue? And all of the women's ministers said, this is a good law. We want this to pass. Here's why it will be good. What would happen if one of the men, you know, ministers or whatever, stood up and said, I disagree. And here's why. They said everybody would back up and create a circle around them because that person is just about to get like verbally attacked and they would mm -hmm. never get elected again ever. They said, first, not only would the women's ministers chew him a new one, they said the men would too, because who are you to think that you can have an opinion? Wow. And I'm like, we, we nice. are so backwards. Like, <laughs> we're so backwards. You know, when it comes to like the initial come from is that women are powerful and self-determining and and Uganda and Africa in general has a history of very powerful women. Like they don't question that. Whereas the history from America, if you go back to England, the history of women are, we were property. We couldn't make our own decisions. Do you know what I mean? Men, like yeah. if, if when 
bicycles were released, you know, were like a new thing. Women were the ones buying most of the bicycles, but then that expanded their area of influence, right? So then male doctors came up with reasons why it was bad for their health for them to ride bicycles because they were getting too much freedom. Like they had, you know, it's things like that that we have in our history so that to this day, we still think it is absolutely okay for a man to have an opinion about abortion even though they don't actually even understand how it works. Like we think that that's okay. And, and when I go to Uganda, if I ask a male politician, and let's just say it's someone like the attorney general, where obviously you need to have an opinion, right? Because yeah. like you're the one signing off on this, you know, like you have to give them an opinion, write an opinion about this law. The first time I asked him, you should have seen his face. It was like, are you setting me up? Like, why are you asking me this question? Like you saw everyone back up. (laughs) No, I mean, he was, he was just like, he would not actually give me an answer. And Mm. so he actually had to go and speak with the women's ministers and other, and the minister of health, who's also a woman, like he had to go and speak with other women to get their opinion before he could come back and say, okay. And I'm like, that would just never occur to us. Do you know what I mean? Never occur to us that, they shouldn't have an opinion because we're so used to this environment of men's opinions are always important and they can have an opinion on everything. Yeah. It, it's wow. just, and, and at the most, we think that we're like doing good because we're like, well, our opinion should be just as, you know, as valid, but look at what happened in the case in Texas um, when the women were suing the state about um the abortion law. Um, if you listen to the, uh, I think it's on YouTube or whatever, that I'm going to say tapes, even though that ages me and they're not really tapes, the recordings of um, the defense attorney talking to a woman who had now lost her ability to have children because they waited Um, until she had an infection before they would provide her the services and care that she needed. So now she can no longer have children. And he literally said her opinion did not matter because the law no longer applied to her. Um, This has been absolutely (laughs) fascinating. So many levels. Oh my God. Um, well, I am so appreciative of you taking the time to share all of this with us. I feel like there is very likely a follow-up episode in our future. Sorry, we need to have you come back to talk about advocacy, definitely. <laughs> right. um, but this has been really fascinating, and I'm excited to share because I think listeners will also, you know, have their minds blown as well that we just no one knows about Uganda and this other side of the world that there are countries that are offering this way and it's not just like we're alone and so different i mean we are on many levels that is also part of the mind-blowing part but um but but the other interesting yeah the other interesting thing about uganda is that so typically surrogacy comes in this gray area of the law right it comes up and then the government comes down to regulate and in uganda because of the women's ministers and them finding this issue they are actually coming in to regulate before their issues, but we have government support. And so like literally I can call up the attorney general and be like, you know, Hey, this is what we need. Or here's, you know, like they are absolutely on board and their motivation is to make sure that everyone is protected. So they're not, they didn't have to come in. It wasn't so big that they had to come in and work with the system that was already there they felt comfortable to say, no, it needs to be done well. And we want to make sure that um, everyone is being respected and that this is, you know, this is a good program. So it's, it's basically government backed, which is different than, as far as I know, any other country, including the, yeah. the U.S. That's incredible. Wow. Well, thank you again. No problem. Thank you, Lisa, for taking the time to come on the podcast. So, so fascinating. So much I've learned from from listening to her today. Yeah, I learned an amazing amount uh, on that one. I mean, and I I thought I had, I mean, I guess definitely had it was just a misperception in there. And so it was really amazing to have some of those things corrected. 
Um, thank you to everyone who is here, of course, for all of you who reach out and call us uh, on our number, which is 303-997-1903. Also head over to our Facebook group. Again, those of you who want to join, you have to answer the questions. Um, and if you answer by saying that you want to sell me a car warranty or an extended car warranty, I absolutely will let you in because nobody ever says that. I mean, okay, one person did. Um, but um, I really, we love it when people come over and participate there. Thank you. Thank you to our team, to uh, Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa. And of course, thank you to all of you who are here to listen.